You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together verses 59 through the end of the chapter, John chapter 6. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he was he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word with the hope and confident expectation that you are going to open your word to our hearts and to our minds. We thank you for your word, which is true, it is clear, It is from you, and we can be sanctified by it. And we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would do that work in our hearts, that you would unite our hearts together in love and sacrifice and service for one another as a result of your word. We pray that your word would be clear to us and that our eyes and hearts would be open to it. We ask that you would grant us the grace to be obedient and to examine ourselves in light of it. Encourage us and equip us together, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I mentioned during announcements that the, un, that the persecuted church in other countries is praying that persecution would come to us, they're not doing that because they hate us. They're doing that because they love us. Because there is a benefit to persecution, not that we would want persecution or desire persecution, but there is a benefit. One of the benefits of persecution is that people do not usually want to die for a message that is not the true gospel. And so you find that the false gospels, the man-centered gospels, quickly fade into the, into the shadows, as it were, in the face of fierce persecution because people don't want to die for something that just offers them material blessings or material benefits because when they're all stripped away, what else do you have? It should be obvious, I think, to everybody in this building sitting here that men and women will rush to embrace a message that offers them everything but demands of them nothing. Men and women will rush to embrace a message that offers them everything and demands of them nothing. Now, the gospel and eternal life is free to us. It is a free gift. And I don't mean to suggest by that that when we embrace the gospel that we are somehow exchanging one thing as if we're purchasing the gospel by something that we do. We're not. But the gospel is a gospel that is fraught with demands. You must be willing to take up your cross and follow Him. You must repent and you must believe and you must be willing to obey or don't call Him Lord, Lord. You have to be willing to obey. And a gospel that demands of us nothing but promises of every, us everything is the closest thing to a free lunch that you can get. We all know there's no such thing as a free lunch because somebody pays for it. 
Everything you think that you get for free, somebody has to pay for it or provide for it in some way. But a gospel that offers us the world, all the blessings and benefits and comforts and conveniences and the best life that we can possibly have right here and right now, and yet demands of us nothing but merely praying a prayer, asking Jesus into our heart, that gospel will be embraced by the multitudes. But when you tell people that the road to heaven is fraught with suffering and sacrifice and that it is, as Paul said, through many tribulations and sufferings that we must enter the kingdom of God. When you tell people that the road to the crown goes through a cross and that Christ demands of us obedience and sacrifice and humility, then people will not flock to that message. They will not be quick to embrace that message. In fact, they will respond to that message with hostility. Give people a message that offers them the world and demands of them nothing, and people will embrace you. The, the country will call you its pastor. Because you're not, you're not demanding of them anything. But tell people that they have to sacrifice and be willing to even die for the sake of Christ if necessary, that that's what the gospel demands. And people will do what they did in John chapter 6. They will walk away. They will do exactly what the multitude did to Jesus' message when He said to them, You must embrace Me as I am. I am your bloody sacrifice for sin. Turn from your sin. Believe upon Me. Take Me as your Lord and your God. Not just your food provider, but your Lord and your God. Submit to Me. Come to Me and embrace Me as all that I am. And take Me to yourself with a true, genuine, saving faith. Take Me as your own. And what did the crowd do? They looked at it and said, This is a difficult message. This is a difficult statement. This is harsh. It's unacceptable. They heard his terms and they said, we reject the terms. We will take you on our terms. Our terms are you provide for us free food. We'll follow you around the countryside. We'll listen to whatever you listen to, but you give to us what we want. You meet our needs, meet our expectations, and we'll make you king. We want a king that will provide for us free food. And Jesus said, no, those are not the terms. The terms are this. You take me as I am, as your bloody sacrifice for sin. Admit that you need me, that I have to give myself to offer you life. I will offer you eternal life on my terms. And they said, we've heard your terms, and they're unacceptable. And they turned and they walked away from him. That was John 6, verse 66. Don't make much out of the reference to 666. There's nothing magical in the verse divisions, by the way. If you already looked at that, John 666, and said, look what 666 says. It says, the result of this, many of disciples withdrew, and we're not walking with him anymore. There's no allusion to the Antichrist in the numbering of the verses, just in case your mind was going there. That's what the crowd did. That's what the multitude did. They, they walked away. We've heard your terms. We reject those terms. That's what we don't want. And they said, that's enough. We, we're going to stop with the sham, stop with the fake belief, stop with the wandering around. If he's not going to feed us, we're not going to follow him. This is a great deal. He's laid us out what his claims are. We reject his claims. We reject his demands. And we'll go on with our life. And they turned and they walked away. Well, now we look at the response of the twelve. Not the disciples, which is, that's how John here refers to the multitude. Not those disciples, those shallow followers, but the response of the twelve now in verses 67 through 71. It's an entirely different response. And I would ask you this. Do you think Jesus was surprised by the unbelief of the multitude? Was he surprised by it? No, we saw in verse 64. He knew who would believe. He knew he would not believe. He knew who were his. He knew who had been given to him by the Father. And he knew those who were not given to him by the Father, who would not believe and whom he not, did not give eternal life to. He knew that, and he knew who would betray him. So their unbelief didn't take him by surprise, and the unbelief of the multitude, by the way, should not take you by surprise either. You share the gospel with somebody, don't be surprised by their unbelief. They ought to reject you. That's what you ought to expect. You ought to go into any witness encounter expecting, okay, I'm going to share the truth with this person, and I ought to expect them to reject this, to be hostile to it, and to hate it. That's the default position of man. Man's default response is unbelief. It's rejection. 
It's a love for darkness. And if you understand what's taught in verse 44 and verse 65, that no one can come to the Father unless the, or to Jesus unless the Father sends him draws him, and if you understand that nobody can has the ability to come to Christ unless the Father grants it, then you're going to understand that apart from a work of God, everybody's going to remain in unbelief. So when you talk to an unbeliever, you ought to expect rejection. And then when they reject you, you're not going to be disappointed. Right? Because this is what I expected. I got it. And then you'd be pleasantly surprised if somebody says, tell me more about this Jesus. Tell me more about this. Give me, give me this message. I want to learn more. And then if they trust Christ, you can be delighted. But expect unbelief. That's why we say that salvation is of the Lord. It's entirely of God. Because if God, by His sovereignty and His grace and the wooing of His Spirit and the work of His Word, if God doesn't do something to overcome man's natural resistance and hostility to the light, then men will remain in darkness and they will remain hostile and they will remain in resistance to it. But God must do something to overcome that so that we can and do believe. And that is why salvation is entirely the work of God. So you never be surprised by unbelief. Jesus wasn't. He expected it from the crowd because he knew these people cannot believe upon me unless the Father who sent me grants it and draws them to me. And if the Father does that, they will believe, they will behold me, I will give them eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So now we look at the response of the disciples. We've seen the response of the multitude. They examined the claims and the demands of Jesus, and they walked away. Didn't want anything to do with it. Now the response of the disciples, beginning in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now you notice that there is a distinction between the twelve and the disciples. Again, in case you weren't here last week, don't confuse the reference to disciples in verse 60 and disciples in verse 66 with the twelve, because this is not a reference to the twelve disciples, the ones we're familiar with that later became apostles. This reference to disciples is to the multitude, the mass that was there, that had seen the miracles on the previous day. And this is John's way of distinguishing between those who simply followed him and the twelve. The twelve were a specific group. It's actually kind of an official title used here. Jesus speaks to the twelve. Jesus speaks of them as the twelve. They would have known themselves as the twelve. People standing around watching them and being with that multitude would have referred to the twelve. There was a group of twelve men whom Jesus had chosen. Those twelve men are distinct from the multitude or the mass. So we've seen what the mass or the disciples did with the message. Now the twelve, Jesus turns to the twelve and says to them a very searching question. Look at it. You do not want to go away also, do you? That's a good question. Why did Jesus ask that question? Was he unaware of what the disciples were thinking? Did he not know what their intentions were? Was was he seriously curious? Okay, the masses have left. Uh Uh-oh, hand-wringing. What will the twelve do with my message? Was that what was going on in the heart and mind of the Lord? He knew. He knew his disciples. He knows his own. He knows the hearts of all men, John chapter 2 tells us. He knew the heart of the disciples. He knew Peter's heart, John's heart, James's heart, Bartholomew's heart. Later on we're going to see he knew Judas's heart as well. He knew the heart of all twelve of these men. His question is not in a question to figure out what is going on. He's not asking for information. He is eliciting a response from the disciples. Why does he want a response from the disciples? He wants a response from the disciples in order to contrast it with the response of the multitude. What had the multitude just done? They had walked away. Now he's asking the twelve basically to express what he already knows is on their hearts. And here's what their expression does. It contrasts this group of twelve men whom he had chosen, whom the Father, except for one, Judas, whom the Father had given to the Son. It contrasts those men with this group that had just walked away. 
And it demonstrates the reality of their faith because you see their response is different than the response of the multitude. And you and I might ask, what is it that makes Peter's response to differ from the mass that walked away? What is it that distinguishes one man from another? From the context of John 6, what is it? Why is it that some believed and stayed and said, you have words of eternal life, and others turned and walked? It's because the Father had given these 11 men to the Son. And the Son was committed to save them and to secure them and to sanctify them and to raise them up at the last day. That was His promise. That's what the Son was going to do. Now now the response of the 12 is simply affirming from Peter's lips what was already in their heart. And it contrasts them with the multitude. Here's the expression of true faith. So look at Peter's response. Look at his response. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now it's kind of characteristic of Peter to be the one who responds. This is kind of Peter's thing. Whenever there seems to be a sentiment on the mind of the hearts of all of the group, it's usually Peter who stands up and is the spokesman, as it were, for the entire group. It's kind of the way he is through all the Gospels, not just John's Gospel. Whenever there's a conviction that's shared by the entire group, Peter's the one who kind of stands up and vocalizes it. So Jesus wants Peter to enunciate what is on the heart of these 11 men. And when I say the 12, by the way, I'm doing so in the spirit of John, who distinguishes Judas as being separate from that. Judas is not saved, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But these 12 men, or these 11 men who were true believers, Peter's the one who speaks for them. Or Peter at least presumes to speak for all 12. Come to find out he's only speaking for 11. But he presumes to speak for all 12. And he says to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Now that's not a statement of desperation. It's not as if Peter is saying this, Lord, where else are we going to go? We have tried everything. I mean, you are our last-ditch attempt at making something of ourselves in our lives. We we have tried uh, New Ageism, and we've tried Buddhism, and we've tried Eastern religions, and we've tried Judaism, and we've tried this, we've tried keeping the law. We have tried every traveling itinerant rabbi preacher on the face of this countryside. To who else are we going to go? We've tried everybody. You are our last-ditch hope of making something of ourselves in our lives. It's not a statement of desperation. It is a statement of wisdom, because Peter is saying that in light of what he says later on. We have come to understand who you are. And because we know who you are, where else... Are we going to go? Peter is saying this. To what other rabbi can we turn? What other teacher can we hear words of life from? What other man-made religion, what other man-centered religion, what other God to whom can we turn that offers what you have offered? What had Jesus offered? Eternal life, union with Him, presence with the Father, being raised up on the last day, spiritual life. That was everything that, that Jesus had offered. And Peter is saying, Lord, you have offered all of this. The crowd has turned away from this. This is what we want. We're not here for the free food. We're here for life. And because you have offered us life, there is nowhere else to whom we could go. And so he says, Lord, to whom else are we going to turn? Where else are we going to go? Verse 68, you have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word believed and the word know our present, uh, uh, our present tense verbs that have the idea of, of doing something at a, t- at a point in time and having a continuing lasting effect from that one thing that was done at a point in time. There was a point where Peter said, I believe. And there was a point where the apostles and the disciples said, we know. We have become convinced of something that is true. We have become convinced of who he is. And that belief and that faith continued on and it never waned. That's, by the way, the nature of true faith. That's how John portrays true faith. True faith is not a faith that starts for a bit and then lasts for a little while and then sort of fizzles out and peters out. And then you walk away and you apostatize and you say, well, I tried Christianity, I was there for a time. I was really into it, I was really religious. That's not the nature of true faith. 
True saving faith begins at a point in time and continues all the way through. And the person who has true saving faith never turns from that faith. It continues continually because that is the nature of the faith that saves. That is what John or Peter is describing here. We have come to know and we have reached a point of believing that you are the Holy One of God. That term Holy One of God is kind of an interesting title. It's a good title. It's only used one other time in all of the Gospels, and this is kind of a curious thing. It's not used often of Jesus. It's only used twice, once here and once in Mark 1 and Luke chapter 4 uh, in the same incident, one other incident, and that is from the lips of a demon-possessed man in the synagogue at Capernaum. In other words, there was another time on a different occasion in the same synagogue, in the same city, that a demon-possessed man said of Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. And now that same confession comes from Peter's lips. And don't, don't sort of spoil the, your idea of what the confession means just because it came from a demon-possessed man. But really, it, though it's only used a couple times, twice of Jesus, and it wasn't a common title, it does call to our mind a title of God from the Old Testament. Do you remember that God in the Old Testament frequently is called the Holy One of Israel? The Holy One of Israel. Over and over again, God is called the Holy One of Israel. For Peter to call Jesus the Holy One of God is to ascribe to him divine characteristics. It is to assign Jesus to the category of God and not to men. Now you and I might ask, does Peter here understand the full implications of the doctrine of the deity of Christ? Did Peter at this moment understand that Jesus was God in human flesh, standing in his presence? Did did Peter have that understanding when he called him the Holy One of God? I don't know if you can make that case, that Peter understood fully the implications of who this person was at this point. But Peter definitely understood that he was who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of the Father in a unique sense, that he was sent by the Father on a divine mission, that he spoke the words of God, that he came from God, that he was different than any other prophet, priest, or king. Peter understood that much. And I think that he is alluding to that title, Holy One of Israel, when he refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God. You are the anointed one sent from God. Peter has just reaffirmed vocally everything Jesus said in the context, that he came from the Father, that he was sent by the Father, that he came to offer his life as as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of many, his divine commission. Peter's affirming all of that by calling him the Holy One of God. That's quite an amazing statement to fall off the lips of a monotheistic Jew, isn't it? Especially since this one whom he is calling the Holy One of God was roundly and openly and completely rejected by the religious leaders of his nation. Peter is here putting himself on the opposite side of all of the Pharisees and saying, we affirm what nobody else, none of the religious leaders of the nation are willing to affirm that you have come from God and that you are the Holy One. In some way sharing the nature of God of the Old Testament. Peter had a very robust understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. You are the Holy One of God. I would ask you to consider something. This statement from the lips of Peter I want you to give some thought to what Peter says here and how you would answer this same question. You're not willing to go away too, are you? That question. You're not willing to go away also, are you? How would you answer that? You and I ought to give some thought to how Peter answers that and what he says and the reasoning behind it. Christianity is full of hypocrites. You and I would admit that. Churches are filled with people who profess Christ but are not really Christians. Um, the church has its share of false teachers, false professors. Uh, our history, the Christian church's history, is fraught with hypocrisy and things that we would just as soon forget and black marks. We have mysterious doctrines, things that are difficult to understand, 
We have people who mar the name of Christ all the time in our midst and among, who call themselves evangelicals and all of that. But when asked by an atheist or an unbeliever or somebody who rejects the claims of Christ, why don't you just give it up? What would you respond with? What would you respond with? Would you respond the way Peter does? Where else am I going to go? Yeah, the Christian church is not perfect. I wouldn't expect it to be perfect. It's a community of sinners that all come together on a Sunday morning. All of you are still sinners. All of you still have an unredeemed flesh. So we're not a perfect gathering of people, but to whom else are you going to go? What other ism? What other man-made religion? What other philosophy? Does atheism offer you forgiveness of sins? Does Buddhism offer you a cleansed conscience? Does Islam offer you eternal reward? Does any other faith, any other God, any other Messiah offer you and I forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and being raised up on the last day? Nobody else would. Why is it then that the multitude walked away from that offer? Why did the multitude walk away from it if Peter and the disciples were not willing to walk away? This is what it boils down to. The multitude looked at what he offered and said, we don't want that. We want this. Give us this. We'll love you and serve you. Jesus said, I'm not offering this. I'm offering this. Come to me on my terms. And they said, no. They don't want that. He did not offer them what they wanted. They did not want what he offered. And they walked away. They proved that they loved darkness more than they loved Christ. And he let them walk away. He let them have exactly what they wanted. But Peter confessed, we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. So to who else would we turn? We have no other better offer. There is nothing else on the face of the planet that compares to you and what you have offered to us. We want what it is that you have offered us. We want eternal life. We want eternal life. That was what Jesus offered them. And that's what Peter wanted. Do you notice in Peter's confession that he doesn't say to Jesus, hey, who else can cook a dinner in the wilderness like you? And that was some of the best fish and bread we have ever had. We're not going to go anywhere else. If you can feed us like that every once in a while, we'll follow you anywhere you want to take us. Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't refer to the miracles at all. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, who else can heal our diseases? Who else can raise up and heal my mother-in-law? Who else can heal the sick and the blind and the lame and cast out demons? No other rabbi is doing these things, so we're going to follow you because of the signs that you do. Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't even reference the miracles at all. What does he say? We've come to realize who you are. And because of who you are, we will obey you and we will walk with you and we will take you on your terms and do anything that is necessary because we want what you have come to offer us. The crowd said, we want the free food. Peter said, we understand who you are. Everything else is everything else is secondary. But because of who you are, we will follow you. That was his confession. Now look at verse 70 and 71. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That statement of Jesus confirms what John said up in verse 64, that Jesus knew who those were that would not believe and who it is that would betray him. Even at this station, and Jesus knew when he chose the twelve, actually, all the way back at the beginning, he knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He knew before he even saw Judas that Judas would be the one who would betray him. He knew who was going to reject him. And when he saw Judas, he appointed Judas to be among the twelve because Judas's betrayal was a, was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. In John chapter, I don't have the reference, I think it's chapter 12, it makes reference to the fact that Judas's uh, no, it's John 17. In John 17, it makes reference to the fact that Judas's betrayal and his perishing was in fulfillment to Scripture. That's why Jesus chose him. And the choosing being mentioned here, by the way, is not a choosing to salvation. That's not divine election. That is a choosing to office, an appointment to the office of the twelve. Jesus is speaking to, quote-unquote, the twelve. 
this group of men. And all the way through the passage, you see it mentioned, I think it's three times in the passage, this reference to the twelve as an office and as a group. And that's the choosing that Jesus is speaking of. He's not saying, I chose you for salvation, Judas. He's saying, I chose you among, I chose you, the twelve, these twelve men to fulfill this office. To follow him, to preach with him, to cast out demons. He gave them authority, Judas included, to do all of the things that Jesus did. He had these twelve men with him. He chose them for that purpose. And yet, Jesus says, one of you is a devil. A devil. You notice how harsh that is? That is harsh language. J.C. Ryle rightly notes that Jesus did not use that language of the multitude that walked away. He didn't even use that language of the Pharisees who were trying to kill him. He reserved that language for whom? For a fake disciple. A hypocrite. Somebody who was not saved. He knew he wasn't saved. It was somebody who made a profession of faith in him and hung around with the twelve, who looked like a disciple, who smelled like a disciple, who acted like a disciple, he sounded like a disciple, he had everybody fooled. In fact, Peter thought he was speaking for all twelve. And John's telling us Peter was speaking for eleven. But there was one there for whom Peter was not speaking. He had even Peter fooled. And the strongest language of Scripture is reserved for this man who didn't even have the decency to do what the crowd did. The crowd had the decency to say, you know what, we're done with this profession, this sham. We're not following this guy anymore. We're just going to reject him. The harshest language is reserved for the most heinous and devilish of wickedness, which is to make a profession of faith in Christ and to the whole time know this is not true. I don't believe it's true, and I'm not willing to obey. I'll hang out. I'll be in the place where all the benefits are at. I'll make a profession of this, a sham of it, an outward mockery of it, because that is some of the worst blasphemy known to man, to make a profession of faith like that, as Judas did. The crowd walked away, but Judas did not. This is John's way of telling us that there was, from the very beginning, somebody who was there to betray the Son of God. He was chosen to that office. He was a devil by his very nature. His character was dark. It was a hideous, hideous thing that Judas did. And that's why Jesus calls him a devil. I actually wanted to take these two verses, 70 and 71, and save them for a whole message in and of themselves. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait until later on in John's Gospel, because this is not the last time that Judas is mentioned. And after we have a chance to look at the other passages that describe Judas, we're going to do a character study just on him, because he ought to serve as a warning to you and I about the hideous nature of the wicked, depraved human heart and the danger that there is in thinking or believing or professing faith in Christ when you do not have the real article and you have not genuinely, truly been born again by the Spirit of God. That is wickedness. It is unspeakable wickedness. So much so that Jesus would call him a devil. Some people say that Judas was saved and that this is a great example of how somebody can be saved and lose their salvation. And we have it right here. And they would argue even from this passage. See, Jesus said he chose them. That's election. Judas was elect. And yet here was somebody who was elect and ended up perishing and, and uh, losing his salvation. Is that possible? It's absolutely not possible. You know how it's not possible? Jesus calls him a devil. He was a devil from the beginning. He was never a believer. Never once was he a believer. He saw the light. He saw all of that, the manifest glory of Christ. And yet he remained in his unbelief and he was an unbeliever. He was a devil from the beginning. This whole passage, the whole Bread of Life discourse is intended to show us that it is impossible for one whom the Father has given to the Son to lose their salvation and to finally perish. Why? Because the Son is committed to lose none of them. He will secure and save all of them. He has vouched His integrity and His word on that. 
To say now that Jesus in this one sentence in verse 70 is overturning everything he said earlier is just ludicrous. That's silly. Judas was not a believer. He wasn't saved. This is not an election to salvation. This is a choosing to an office, to hold an office. That's all that's being described. And Judas the whole time, even though chosen for an office, was a devil. He was not a believer. He was a professing believer. That is the heinousness of his wickedness. This is John's way. I think I said this at the beginning of John chapter 6 when we went through the preview, the little introduction to John 6. So if this was made into a movie, this is the part where the, the soundtrack would go, dun, 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 dun. This is the sort of the low part in the story when you suddenly get this feeling that, okay, not everything is right with the 12. Peter thought he spoke for the 12. John's saying, no, there's one who should have, if he had the decency of the multitude, he should have left. Or he should have got saved. But he didn't. He hung out with the 12 and he was the one who would betray Jesus. And then from this point, John's kind of silent about Judas for quite a, a much longer time in the gospel, all the way until that final week when you see fi- Judas finally come out of the shadows and do his diabolical deed. Look at verse 71. Jesus was speaking of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve who was going to betray him. That's what Judas was chosen for. That's what his, that's what his office and station was in life. He was chosen to be among the twelve so that he could betray the Son of God and that Christ could be crucified and pay the death, the penalty for our sin and our sin debt. That re- brings us to the end of chapter 6. I know you thought you'd never see it. I thought I would never see it, but that is the end of John chapter 6. This chapter began on a high note. The multitudes, the crowds were following him. And now it closes on a low note. Many of his disciples walked with him no more. The high note is verse 2. The multitudes followed him. The low note is verse 66. The multitudes walked away from him. What happens between those two points? One sermon. One sermon, the Bread of Life Discourse. And they all walked away. In less than 24 hours, he has gone from a multitude to 12 men. Was Jesus a failure? Was he a failure? Might I suggest to you that this sermon had the exact result that Jesus intended this sermon to have? He's not interested in followers who make a sham of their faith. He's not interested in having clingers on, people who just hang out and make a profession of faith. He's not interested in the shallow applause of the multitude. This did exactly what he wanted it to do. It drove away people who were not truly believers in him, and it manifested who it was that the Father had given to him and who it was that the Father had not given to him. That was the point of the sermon, to drive away false believers. Jesus is far less enamored with numbers than you and I are and than many of his professed believers are. American evangelicalism is obsessed with church growth, obsessed with numbers and church growth. Every week in our mailbox at church, this church mailbox, we get books, articles, pamphlets, flyers for every conceivable church growth strategy, program, conference, song, textbook, flyer, whatever it is under the sun that you can possibly conceive of, we get it because modern evangelicalism is obsessed with church growth. John 6 is reverse church growth. In fact, by the standards of most church growth experts, Jesus is the ultimate failure. He had a crowd. 24 hours later, one sermon later, he's got 12 men. How many times can you do that? Jesus is not not one bit concerned about numbers or church growth. What is he concerned with? He did not come to gather goats and to receive the applause of the masses. He was concerned with this that those whom the Father had given to him would be saved. He came to save, to sanctify, and to secure forever 
all whom the Father had given to him. And that's what John 6 is about. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for all that we have learned in this chapter about your sovereign purposes, your grace, your condescending love for us in Christ. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in counting us among that number that you've given to your Son. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. And Lord, if there are people who are among us and our number who do not know you, who, like Judas, have made a sham of professing faith in Christ, who are not willing to obey you, not willing to submit to you, not willing to be transformed and trans, uh, have their lives changed by you, we pray, O oh God, that you would, by your mercy, draw them to yourself, draw them to yourself and show them and show us the true state of our heart. We want to be among those who can say that we would not turn anywhere else because you have the words of life and you have given us life and you have promised us life and that's what we want, is what we desire. And we thank you for a message and for a salvation that meets our deepest needs, not our felt wants and needs, but those things which are our true needs and our true desires, which is hungering after righteousness and holiness and eternal life. Thank you for the promise of this chapter stated four times that all who have beheld and believed upon the Son will be raised up on the last day. What a glorious truth that is and what a glorious resurrection we await, that day when we will see you and be made just like Christ and have life eternal and rejoice in your presence. May untold millions enjoy that same pleasure and joy and glory by your grace and by your sovereign purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.